I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Chris Kumatri, and he is an Aboriginal Project Officer for the Natural Resources SA Murray-Darling Basin. Welcome, Chris. Yeah, how are you guys? Very good, mate. I hope I said all that correctly. Yep, yep, you said my name, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Mate, thanks for coming on. And what does it mean to be, what's your role as the Aboriginal Project Officer? Um, My role as a project officer for um, the Murray-Darling Basin is to uh, engage Aboriginal people in NRM projects. Uh, And we have a few of those in the Riverland and also uh, further down on the Coorong and places like that as well. Okay, so when you say like projects, like uh, re-veg type projects or monitoring or... We, um, because we're Indigenous, we're basically involved in most of the things that happen on the land. So uh, pest control, weed control, um, also heritage stuff um, that we work with a lot of uh, Indigenous groups to work with the heritage. That's like um, protection of sites, burial sites and and other... uh, areas of significance for indigenous people so it's pretty involved so you're involved in a bit of everything yeah well we've we've sort of like um in the department we've got water we've got all these others and indigenous people we just fit in all of those so my job takes me from talking about water one day then it could actually be doing uh, uh talking about uh preserving burial sites because the rabbits have gone in and, and dug up the bones and, and destroyed a few things and also you know, about middens that have been damaged by um, uh, you know just, just the normal public they, they do get in and damage some of the sites so we've got to get in and, and uh, protect them to make sure they're okay for the future And when you say a midden so for people that don't know that's uh... A midden is, is you've got you have the burial site and the midden is where you might find food, you might find some shells, you might find fires and, and those things so it's actually a place where they prepared food as well so um, most of the time you'll actually see the soil will actually be black where it's been burning for you know, there could be a fire on there for 20-30 years uh, you know, you just don't know but you can actually go back, we went to one site where it was pretty well um pretty well smashed with tourists and that have come in and camped there but we actually went past that that uh, era and then we actually went down into the deeper parts and we actually still found the campfires that they had we still found the stones that they worked on to create knives and and all these sorts of things so it was really eye-opening to actually go to a place where the um you could still see them there you could still Imagine what they were doing. Uh, we found uh, a couple of skulls not far away from where everybody's been camping and lighting their fires and things like that. So uh, very eye-opening about, about the, uh, the older ways of doing things, yeah. So your title includes natural resources, but that branches out and includes archaeology, practically. Oh, anything that we're involved in, uh, you know, everything within NRM area, we're, we're definitely in there. Um, and we're... We're sort of working with the First Peoples of the Riverland uh, to actually uh, yeah, create these projects where we can get in and work together and uh, save some of these sites and protect some of these things that we need that needs protecting because once they're gone, they're, we're never going to get them back. So. And we're talking about the oldest culture on Earth. Yes, yes, one of the oldest cultures. Well, it is the. I think we can we can I think we can brag a bit about that and say <laughs> we are the oldest. Um, I think when you look at it, um, you know, you only got to go and have a look at the boomerang. You only got to go and look at some of these other things that that we created. You know, you needed you needed to have some sort of skill to work that out. Um, even when it comes to bush foods, um, you know, who was the first person that tried some of that bush food? Uh, you know, run into trouble with it. Um, so there had to be in the you know. Uh, a, a pretty good knowledge about bush food and what it did and, and things like that. So, you know, even today we still we still grow those things. We still know about the, the bush foods and, um, you know, we still do use some of it. So, you know, it's not, not too bad. Yes. Now, we're sitting at the Riverland Field Days and we're in the Natural Resources Management tent. 
and you've got a beautiful display here. Can you tell us about some of I believe your mum is uh, quite uh, famous for some of these. Yep, we've um, I've got on display some of uh, mum's work, Yvonne Kumatri. Um, the reason why now she's getting a little older now, she's about 73, still got a fair bit of sting in her tail, but uh, still tells me off, I'm 51, so still, still sort of <laughs> rules my life a little bit, but um, but no, we're just showing some of the stuff that she actually creates, so she doesn't only do the indigenous side of things or the cultural side, she actually branches out and does some really modern work as well, but the importance of the, the weaving is that it, we nearly lost it. And if it wasn't for an old lady by the name of uh, one, of, one of the old aunties, um, Auntie Dory Catinery, who actually taught mum and about another 12 other women in a, in a school hall at, at Meningi uh, many, many years ago. Um, so she revived it down there and, and um, you know, now you've got weaving is going all over the place. People are learning how to do it. Um, you know, and the weaving that mum's been doing has actually taken her to Venice. In Venice. So, yeah, so she actually did get to Venice. Um, you know, this is a person that sort of like grew up out in the Mallee and also Maralinga and all those places. Um, didn't have very much education, but she actually taught herself to read by reading comics and, and all that sort of stuff. And now she was sitting in Venice and um, she actually brought back presents for everybody. Uh, so she brought back all this expensive leather and this glass work. Didn't glass manufacture start in Venice? Yes. So that's why that's why they, they got it. The others got it. Um, I was fortunate enough that she brought me back $2.50 in lira. Uh, that was my gift. Everybody else got <laughs> glass and expensive leather. I got $2.50 in lira. <laughs> You're so hard to buy for, though. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty fussy. Pretty fussy with what I get. That's great. You talked about people coming and camping on the land and uh, you know, destroying some of these sites or impacting the sites, and it must be a balancing act because you want to encourage people to come and you know see the, the nature and the environment and be part of it and respect it. You know, you want to encourage that, but at the same time, it, people wouldn't realise that you know what what's there, and you know that that balance must be a hard one to strike at times. It, it's pretty hard to sort of like explain what it's like um, we're sort of like uh, even from when we're small we're taught about to respect the burial site it doesn't matter how old it is it really doesn't matter who's in there uh, who's buried in the burial site it's 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 the whole principle of it's showing respect so we're all taught that at a very young age that um, you know we must respect those people that are buried there so we will go in and, you know, we're always taught if we see something, we'll cover it up, um, you know, recover it and things like that. Uh, very rarely will you find a black person walking across a burial site. <laughs> it won't happen. We'll sort of go around the fringes because we really firmly believe that it's, a, it's, a, it's you know, um, there's a few people that do it, but a lot of people really want to show that respect and, and don't walk across the burial sites. But we have been in places where... You know, people have come in and destroyed the sites and, and, and actually attacked the bones and, and those sorts of things. So we're really trying to get in there and educate people to say, look, you know, even though this is very old, it's a burial, it's, it's a cemetery like any other cemetery where, you know, we want people to show respect. So, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a very interesting uh, field to get into because uh, a lot of Indigenous people buried, they buried their dead in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, some of the stories is that, um, uh, especially from around my country, um, if you um, if you wasn't a very good person when you was alive, they'd follow that through. Why when you die, they'd bury you upside down so your spirit doesn't <laughs> go to heaven. It goes stays where where you belong. Um, but there's there's others where they've um, buried people upright. Um, also, there's some laying down, but. You can also, there's, there's some that are actually buried in fetal positions with actually um, sinew, uh, like um, you know, kangaroo skins that are tied around them and, and all that sort of stuff. So there's definitely a, uh, an eye-opening uh, thing to see that as a, as a sort of like a, um, a, a modern Aboriginal, I suppose you, you can call me that. 
Um, but it, it's something to see that you can actually tell that's the age of it. That, that just what it does to me, it just reinforces that you know we've been on this land for a long, long time, and uh, you know we've had a lot of customs and religion on, on this on this land. So you know, we've got a bond to it. it. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you you know if you're sitting in Adelaide and you going to KFC or anything it doesn't matter it's still in us um, that sort of stuff uh, you know I was, I was read up on the Kurong, um, a place called Bonner Reserve and um, I'm light skinned but you know there's photos of me that I'm just black because I just got all the black dirt on me I just go out and play every day uh, go in ventures um, go and catch what I used to call diamond head snakes I found out later on they're actually common brown snakes we used to catch them with a stick <laughs> <laughs> and stick them in jars uh, to to um, you know uh, preserve them and all that, but we didn't know that they're highly dangerous. We we just we were just told that they were diamond head snakes and they don't really mean because they're only thin. So how could that how could that kill you? Then we found out later on that yeah they can actually give you a fair old whack with venom. Um, but yeah, that, you know those sorts of things. We've um, yeah I was brought up with my mother telling us stories like every night about uh, my grandparents and that as well uh, they just tell you stories about different things some of the stories are there to frighten you pretty well um, you know some of the stuff is to you know get you in, inside at night before the old woman comes out of the sun um, usually if you see in the afternoon you'll see the rays come down from the sun she uses that as a, as a stairway and she comes down and takes you away if you're still outside before the sun goes down so it's sort of definitely a story to tell you you know get yourself inside or this old woman will come and get you uh we have stories like pooping gown that um she actually comes and steals kids and eats them and, uh, so that yeah there's I love that yeah so i go to schools and i tell kids you know look unfortunately in in, in black people's stories a lot of people die. <laughs> just die in things. So you pass um, those stories on to kids. Yeah, yeah. Good we saw you. like um, we. I built it up one day. Uh, we had to show this film about Narendra dreaming, and it's been professionally uh, produced and everything. And I try to really warn them that the music's really loud and you know be very careful. But what I was really doing, like you're terrifying. Them. I terrified this one kid. As soon as the music boomed, he just screamed, and he and he took off outside. and And we started talking to him after. He said, "No, no, you said that was going to happen, and and I seen it, and and it it come out." And he so he really really panicked about it. So we apologised to him and, and turned the, the volume down a little bit and just let him. And then I said to him, "Well, I actually, I'm, you know, the the guy on there, Narendra, I actually went to school with him, which I did. I actually went to school at, uh, with the, with the guy that's actually been Narendra. So." Uh, but some of the, yeah, some of the stuff that we tell the kids, but we, we sort of tell them, and, and then we tell, we explain to them why you've been told that story. It's a story about safety. Uh, you know, we also talk about things like uh, Mulyawank, which is the bunyip. Is that the one that lives in the water? He lives in the water, yeah. And the Riverland is pretty, uh, is is a pretty um, a strong area because there's everybody knows that there's uh, caves down at um, Swan Reach that run into out into the Mallee well the whole idea is that's supposed to be his caves where he lives and um, you know the stories there that you tell us about he, he's he's just a he's not a very good person not a very good creature uh, he hates kids and takes kids away if you go too close to the river um, and all this sort of stuff I remember at Kingston on Murray I t- was telling his kids of the Mulyawang story and I was telling them you know even the water when the water moves around it'll be got to be very careful I didn't realise that after my session they're actually getting on boats and going in the river <laughs> <laughs> so it started coming really windy and the kids were slide, staring at me and I went <laughs> I told you <laughs> so they're really really reluctant to get on the boat so yeah a bit, a bit of a comical thing but that's hilarious but all of those stories that you were told by your parents have brought you up with the utmost of respect for everything in life which is pretty awesome oh, I think so I think look we you know at the end of the day we're just we're just everyday people um, I think a lot of people don't understand the average people are pretty funny uh, we've got a lot of humour we do laugh at things and uh, but I, I think um, you know my grandfather he he, um, he worked all his life uh, all that sort of stuff um, all my all my family worked pretty well and, and pretty well into the culture. Uh, one of my uncles is actually Bluey Roberts, he's one of, the, one of the old famous artists. 
um, that done a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, we've we've um, uh, we've just been brought up that way with with some of the stories, or most of the stories where we get told about different things. Um, you know, we stories like um, the Kinji man who lives in the stinking water roll and all that sort of stuff that sort of like terrifies you when you're small. Um, if you ever go duck shooting at this stinking water hole, the Kinji men will come along and take your ducks and then come and give you a bit of a flogging for <laughs> killing them anyway. Uh, you're only a kid, you're not going duck shooting, but you don't go near the water for a little while. And um, So, yeah, so there's there's lots of stories to, uh, you know, that, that are pretty interesting, and but they are there to sort of like control you a little bit and make sure that you, you do what you're told. So, yeah. Uh, to protect you and wildlife at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel a bit sorry for uh, people that come to the field days with me because with you guys, you bring your native animals and when they're all there, patting them on, poking them in the ribs and saying, yeah, he's just about ready to go. A bit of pepper and salt and we should be a bit of flour. We should be pretty all right with him. And it's like giving me a pretty bad look. Um, but the thing is, we, we still eat. We still eat a lot of that food. We still... Um, uh, you know, one of the things that people should really, well, not, maybe I shouldn't do that, but um, is if you ever do get the opportunity to have a taste of a swan egg, go out and do it. A swan? A swan egg. A swan egg, yeah. Yeah, swan's pretty good too. Nice. Um, and those sorts of things. But we, uh, you know, when I talk to the kids, you know, I say, look, some of my food comes pretty, really, really pretty wrapping. And they say, so what are you talking about? And they said, no, no, it doesn't. I said, your food, your food comes wrapped. They said, yeah, but I said, oh, mine comes really, really, really colourful. And we're standing near a hollow and some of the parrots come out and I said, there, they're really nice, ready wrapped and ready for me to go. <laughs> so we sort of like really want to sell it across to them that, you know, we do, uh, a, lot, a lot of the animals that we do have around, we do actually eat them and we do, uh, a lot of animals we don't do anymore. Uh, like Mallyfowl, I've never uh, hasn't been taken for a long, long time because uh, we start to realise about those animals because we're not seeing them in the wild very much. So, you know, preservation is one of the things that we're, we're on about these days. So, yeah. Well, the beautiful thing about um, your culture is that you guys would eat, eat a sustainable amount of food and you would have a sustainable amount of people. And no offence, Steve, but since the Europeans got here... Sorry. <laughs> um, a running joke we have with Steve. We, we, we just have this kind of... We just, our population's exploding. I mean, we see it all over the planet now. It's not just Steve. It's everybody. And and it's not, it's not sustainable. And we have to have factory farming, which is... I think animal cruelty. I mean, and, and I, you know, I support it too because I will go to the butcher and I do my best not to. But sometimes you don't know where your meat comes from. But you guys knew exactly where your meat came from. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and it's definitely fresh. And, and you know, some of that stuff, some of the food is, is uh, you know, there's no fat on it. There's no nothing. It's really good for you. But I can't really make fun of Steve because he's a pommy. Uh, my great grandfather actually come from Cornwall, England. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. If I make fun of him, I'll make fun of myself, yeah. I suppose. Because I don't let that stop you, mate. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about Cornish pasties now. Oh, <laughs> I love Cornish pasties. What were the pasties? ingredients in yours? Uh, well, <laughs> we've sort of like, um, there's been a few in- interesting things, and the other thing's been a bit of duck and, and all those sorts of things. But um, I think a lot of, uh, mainly the stuff that we do take is, we do take ducks and, and things like that. I think we've had, um, I've seen a new recipe for... Um, for uh, black swan, actually, I never, never realised that you could. And it's the kiwis; they actually um, cut the breast off, and they're actually um, crumb it. So, nice. yeah. So you can't do that in England because swans are owned by the Queen or some rubbish. And you don't have any black ones. I think Australia. Yeah, that's the only, those white ones. Only country that's in the, the world with we black do have swans. black ones. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. They're from here. They'll be introduced. Yeah. <laughs> are they called Buick? Don't worry. Nor do I, so we'll probably take that out. <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, as I said, we still do most of the stuff that we do. There's a lot of stuff that we, we don't do anymore. Um, you know, because of um, uh, when Europeans come in, it's like changed us a little bit. You know, some of us lost a lot of our language. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's some that are trying to find their language now. Some are doing um, uh, a lot of research in that um, but there are some of us that have really lost a fair bit of the language uh, of their own because you know we all know that 
before European settlement, there was over 250 different languages and dialects. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, from the last report, we've already lost about 100 of those already. And some of those will never come back. Uh, some of the groups like the Nadijeri people from uh, down uh, down on the Kurong, they actually come through and, and started reviving their language, bringing it back, because it was actually, uh, a Bible was actually translated in Nadijeri. So they've learnt a, a lot of language from that. So, so we've been pretty, pretty lucky. Um, and for people maybe overseas that weren't aware, you guys didn't have any written language, which is one of the reasons why people like yourself, Chris, are such good storytellers. Yeah, well, we've, we've sort of like, um, there was not, not very much written down, um, but there's also, there's a lot of evidence about signs that were uh, markings and things like that actually tells the story. Um, but we've lost a little bit of, we've lost a little bit of that understanding, that translation about what those markings mean. Uh, but there's a few people doing a lot of research now and finding out that so, it is so, a sort so of markings. Sorry, they're markings like like paintings. Um, in some places, it's they're scratched on the on the sandstone walls. There's a lot of stories on the walls. Um, my grandfather told me that some of the things was that it was put on stone, and because it's stones, you know, it's not anywhere. It's not stable anywhere. It's, so we've probably lost a fair bit of that through that, but. Most of it, we are a talking, we are a talking culture. Um, we I, believe, are a, I believe dance played a role too. Would I be right to say that? Yeah, well, I don't do it, but um, <laughs> uh, but a dance, dance actually uh, mimicked a lot of the animals because, uh, as you know, um, where I come from, um, if you had a totem, uh, we would call that an archie, um, and uh, that would be like your totem. So. You know, later on, when when we started, uh, when the modern we sort of like started using those other words. Uh, that's why they're still around today, is because the um, uh, Nazi we use that as a that's that's your friend now. So we can say that you know you're my Nazi, so you're my friend. Um, my understanding of that, is, I, I'm probably completely wrong, but if you like had a Nazi or a totem, that was an animal that you did not eat and you oversaw almost the conservation of that animal it was it was important because it, it represented you um, you know a lot of people uh, their Nazis along the river and uh, down to the mouth sort of thing pelican comes across really really strong um, a lot of Nazis but also the river people have the black duck is their Nazi as well um, so there's a few. I think the hint, the hint there with the, with that is, don't pick a nachi that tastes good. <laughs> pick gotcha. something that's not tasty, um, because then you're ruined. You know, if you yeah, you're yeah. somewhere and you only got your nachi around, you can't can't do anything with it. So you're going to starve. So, but I think um, I think the thing is, you know, but these days now with the younger followers, um, it's it's starting to come back. The younger kids, you know, there's one kid, uh, one girl in uh, Murray Bridge who said, Uncle. I can, I can do Welcome to Country in our language. And I said, well, off you go. And she basically did the whole thing in our language, and I said, I'm very proud of you. She said, how can you be proud of me? You don't even know me. I said, oh, but I don't know you, but I know your family, I know your, your grandfather. And then I told her the whole thing, who she, how she's related and, and uh, all that. So she said, well, that's another thing I've learnt. And, uh, so... I think there's, you know, but I, I think where the where the real special stuff is when we work with non-indigenous kids. Uh, you know, I think everybody wants they want this change that they keep talking about. But I think we're going to have the change when we when we have the kids. The kids are going to make these changes, and uh, you know, I think that's that's a real good thing. I think we're going to you know, we'll see a lot of kids thinking about things now, and um, you know, I, th- I think that. Is, is really powerful when you start seeing uh, you know, non-Indigenous kids start talking the language, start understanding about a burial site, understanding about a canoe tree, uh, um, understanding that there's an older history here and, and really want to really have a bit of a thirst to find out a little bit more about it. I think it's really well, and it, it is fascinating too, and at any age, but like I say, especially kids. I mean, I grew up in a typical you know, European school classroom and I was one of those kids that just didn't learn in that environment and I can imagine 
you would have been out there learning. I mean, would I be right to say you would have learned how to do tracking? Everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah the whole lot. Um, it's it's something that um, um, it's just something that we all we all do. It's it, it's sort of like we you know we just go together. Uh, the land and us, we just go together. It's just something that's it's just a natural thing for us. Uh, a lot of the projects that we do work on, um, the the secret is that we actually get the young fellas to work on the land. And the whole idea is there that that's a strength for them to work on the land. Um, once they get going on that, we can actually then start talking about working on their numeracy literacy. Uh, they've already got that nice strong background there. Um, and that gives them the, the confidence for us to start dealing with some of the weaknesses that they do have, uh, you know, preparing for the modern world. So I think, you know, we've seen people come in um, having a lot of problems to now being some of the, some of the best trained people in, in, in South Australia. Uh, but, you know, now they go on and be mentors and they can act, they actually start doing that with the, with the kids themselves. So it's really, really, a, a, you know, it's a good, it's a really good thing to see that this is happening now. So, uh, you know, the projects that we're doing. Man, I wish that was around when I was a kid. Oh, I, I did a show that I do wildlife shows around the state, as you know, education with native animals, teaching about conservation. And I was at Christie's Beach High School um, the other day and I was amazed. They've got an environmental centre uh, attached onto the school and all around it they've, they've put back the local native plants and these kids they they grow these plants they they weed the garden they know the plants they've got um can't remember the name of it but they've got like a indigenous plant use part of this garden so they know that this does that that does this and these kids are so engaged they build the trails so they're getting hands-on yeah. and they're learning um skills and yep. they've got the education room, all the books about the animals and the plants, and they love it. Oh, as I said, just just with uh, the kids in general, um, you know, we do all sorts of things with them, but it's, uh, they've never, well, I've had one boy in one class that he just said, I'm bored. Tried all the things, there's a few tricks you do, but said, I'm bored. Um, but when we started talking about burials and and how this is done and like how smoke is used and he's very quickly come into the idea and then he started understanding okay um, and then he's really got in tuned in it and then he like he's seen me in the street and he said I know all about what you said and, and all that sort of stuff so that that's gives you a bit of pride when you, when you think that you've you know, you've, you've talked to this kid and uh, yeah you might not even engage on the day but then yeah. they, like five years later they, they remember what you've said yeah they come up and go Chris wow you changed me mate you know? yeah so there's some really good stuff and uh, you know I'm not the only one that is doing it there's a lot of us now that are, are getting around and seeing the value in actually working in the schools and, and I think we're, we're you know, we all want to do this reconciliation stuff um, but I really feel that it's definitely going to come from the kids I think kids Kids can actually teach us a fair bit about sharing and caring, um, and and that's one good thing that I, I really like fostering with them is to you know keep that going. Let's um, you know I think the future's you know looking pretty good when it comes to reconciliation. I think good, good attitude. Now I've got to ask you, you you grew up in the Kurum, yep, and there's still a lot of bush in the Kurum, but you would have seen a lot of changes over time. Yes, there's uh, I've got to put it out there, it's a hot spot for cryptid animal sightings like big cats and dare I say it thylacines what, what, what am I am I what well, do you think about that I can I can tell you um, when we're being told some of those stories we, we actually do get told about the stories that animals have escaped like the black panther uh, the cougar <laughs> um, the singed camels um, so oh, I heard that one. Singed yeah, camel. the, the singed camels. Yeah, the, a circus was down on uh, just near Salt Creek, which is called the Loop Road, and it they caught light. So a lot of the the, the, the um, cages actually caught light. So these these poor camels, they got out alive, but they actually got a bit singed. So uh, a lot of the old people they talk about the singed camels, and uh, uh, but. <laughs> When, become uh, folklore. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of like a bit of a legend about these <laughs> singed camels. There's two of them. <laughs> uh, I don't really know what the names are, but, you know. Um, 
But we sort of like talk about um, where some of these big animals were actually did escape from some of these circuses that were around. And there's stories about, um, you know, where a farmer hung up a carcass um, and that carcass was actually taken off of there and whatever it was actually jumped over a fence and took the carcass away. So a lot of people do say that it's, it's, these animals are still there. Um, I remember when we were doing some uh, fish surveys or actually tagging some Kurong mullet. Uh, one early morning, um, we pulled up right up next door. As you know, the Kurong is actually in between the Kurong and the sea. There's, a, there's the sand dunes, the hummocks. And I remember our boat was getting pretty close to the other side and I actually seen a brown... Well, it walked away like a cat. It slinked away like a cat, but it was actually bigger than a dog. Um, so there's, you know, there's there's a lot of instances where, uh, you know, some sheep have been grabbed from the fence, from one side of the fence, drug over the other side, killed over the other side, uh, and then, you know, just, just, just pulled apart. So... Um, there's not too many. There's not too many animals that would. I don't think would be able to really do that. Uh, I did see a, a brown creature there once um, that was coming out of Bonnie Reserve. He's running across a paddock. Uh, he was just totally brown, but he was. He, he might have been just a little bit smaller than the Great Dane. So, but he was brown. I just can't get over how brown he really was. Um, but he was like just jumping the fences. I don't know what it was, but he was heading, definitely heading for the ranges, the Canalpin ranges, and that. Yeah, and a big animal. Oh, he's massive. Yeah. Well. I like. I had a I had a rifle with me, and I thought, you know, let's just shoot it. You know, we'll shoot everything. So, but I thought, what if I miss, or what if I just make him mad? He's going to turn around and come back. <laughs> I got nowhere to go. Um, I remember thinking about that story one day. Uh, I was still like crawling on these kangaroos. They were down in a gully and I was just crawling on them. I was following their path, so I was on, on, my, on my stomach and I was just crawling along. Then all of a sudden I feel something touch my boot. And I went, oh, I just like the brown, that big brown thing, whatever it is. And I just kept crawling. I was just a bit too frightened to turn around. And when I turned around, there's actually this old buck kangaroo coming up behind me and he's grabbing my foot. Oh, yeah. So I started thinking, oh, I think this is a bad omen. Don't know what his intentions are. Don't want to know. Um, so I just laid there, and um, he sort of like come right up. I don't know if he was sort of like saying, you know, don't, don't shoot mm. kangaroos or what. Um, but ever since after that, every time I'd go in the bush, I'd actually run into him, see him. Uh, he'd come right up close to me. Wouldn't um, you know do anything. But he's really grey. His muzzle was really, really grey. So he's a really old, old kangaroo. But he wouldn't. He's no aggression. He's just come up and, and you know, he's grabbing my foot. So he must have thought it was a bit of a weird thing for a person to crawl around on the ground. Um, so, yeah, I never never shot any more kangaroos down that, in that area. Never, much like he was pleading with you not to... That's that's the way I looked at it. It's sort of like just saying, look, you know, don't, don't do that. So never ever done it. He never ever went to that area again and done it again. So... Um, but as for Bonner Reserve and the Kurong, it's spooky as. It's a spooky place. Um, you know, you can hear people singing and you can hear them. Um, where I was talking a bit earlier about going to burial sites and all that. Well, you know, when you're young, you're like, you're fool, you're silly, you don't know you. So uh, we went to some a burial site where the car stopped, wouldn't go. We actually heard people singing. Uh, in language so they were actually clapping the sticks and they were singing the language um, we just didn't know what to do we just didn't know how to how to get out of there because the car wouldn't start then a, a big gust of wind come along pushed the car the car rocked a little bit and turned the car on and we were allowed to leave so it gave us a bit of a fright mm. um, but Bonner Reserve itself there's a, there's a big man there there's a big creature that lives there um, he's, he's massive. Um, certain times of year, uh, when the moon is full, you the way you know he's he's coming is that all these little birds chirp. They just chirp right through the scrub. You can hear them all chirping, really loud. And then there's a bit of a, a bit of a scream, a bit of a, a, a voice, vocal thing. But 
um, yeah, this guy is actually, um, uh, mum and dad used to go spotlighting and uh, this thing appeared in the bush, um, they were an old Land Rover, um, so they appear, it appeared in the bush staring down at me, just had one high. So mum went under the dash, she wouldn't go and she just crawled under the dash. <laughs> uh, dad was trying to chase it um, and he reckoned it was kicking up sand as it was running along. So we saw like there's certain parts of Bonnie Reserve where you sort of like know that <laughs> probably it's not a good place to go. Uh, I found Mallee stumps or Mallee branches actually knocked down um, and they were, they were as round as a two litre Coke bottle and they were snapped off. Um, so I saw like we treat it with a lot of respect um, but it's known as it, it, it comes down to the old house where we all lived the windows the windows probably from the ground because um, it's a transportable house it's probably um, probably about nine feet we seen the we seen something go across there and darken that window out so um, yeah uh, one night I was um, this is sort of like a bit more of a spiritual sort of thing a bit more of a uh, ghost thing, but um, my grandparents said don't play with matches. I used to, I used to be crazy about World War Two, and you know the the, the, the planes that they used to fire the rockets. Well, I used to use the matches and do that, fire it, and I said, don't do it. And I walked up to the end room, and something grabbed me, something grabbed me from the chest, picked me straight up off the ground. I thought it was my uncle's playing around because they used to do those sorts of things. I looked back in the table, and they're all sitting around the table looking at me, and I'm getting. I'm getting pulled into the room. Can't see anything, um, but it let me go and I went back into the light. Uh, my uncle, he was sitting by the window and he was actually grabbed by something through the window and he could feel the fur, but you can't see it. Uh, my grandfather, who's not frightened of anything, he basically walked out one night from the, from the step and his face hit something furry. And um, so... And he come back in, he's like dark skin, he come in like white <laughs> uh, and saying, get the gun, get the gun. So it's a, it's a pretty, uh, one night, this lightning strike, I remember it, I was only about eight years old, this lightning strike from out the back door, it would hit the ground and then it would fill an image. I've done it three times and this image of a, you see a woman like standing there with a, with a thing over her face, a veil. You can see it plain as day. If you could take a photo, you'd, you'd see it. But it, the lightning hit the ground and fill up that. Yeah, so it was all white. We could see it as plain as day. And then there was the other guy, the older old guy that used to sit at the end of the bushes in a dark black trench coat with sunglasses. Don't know what his story was. Nobody ever worried about asking him. Just don't know. It's a spooky place. So do you think this kind of mm. connection with that spiritual realm is enhanced by being in nature? Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories. Um, you know, uh, Girard is another place that's got a lot, of, a lot of that sort of stories. And it just seems to be where we've all congregated or lived is that there is some, there's something there. Not the energy, not the energy yeah, more yeah, the resonance. Yeah, and, and we're very mindful of it. Um, um, you know, but some of the stories, some of the stories are so creepy. Um, you know, if we had one guy here today, he's not here today, but could have, would try to get him to tell you a story. Um, he he would just say, yeah, he wouldn't really talk about it. He he went into a house and a house was had everything floating in the house, and he could hear music and singing and all that sort of stuff. But he, you ask him about it, he'd go, yeah, and that's all he'll say. He won't say very much more. Um, so there's some really stuff that happens. He's traumatized. Yeah, he's, he is traumatized. Um, but we've, um, but I think you know we we believe in that spiritual world. It's something that we believe in, and we do respect it. It is something that we, um, you know, uh, we do believe that the people when they pass on, they don't die. They're still with us. They're still around us. They still talk to us. They still work out some way of communicating with us. So, we, you know, um, we don't sort of like. Uh, um, I take notice that a lot of old people, when somebody passes away, they sort of like remember their birthday, and they say, well, they don't say he was, they say he is 20 today. Mm -hmm. So we still keep that. It's still there. It's, it's pretty strong. It's a pretty strong draw for us. So, yeah. That's very powerful. Do you, there's a plant called Dubusia hotwoodii 
and it's called the Pachuri plant and some of the people in Central Australia use it to make a psychedelic yep. to connect with the spirit. Yep. Do, do you guys have any psychedelic plant use you can tell me off air? Another, <laughs> another podcast that you've another. managed to get plants into. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I do love plants. Um, <laughs> no, and well... Well, we'll probably let out some secrets, yeah. We can let <laughs> uh, Yeah, there is some definitely uh, plants that we use as a bit more of a... Well, probably when a day gets a bit boring. You know, you can't spear every day, all day. You've got to do something else. So there is some there is some uh, plants that we do use to actually give us a little bit of a, a lift, let's say. Um, uh, some of them are... Um, the, one of them is out here in the field. Those we're actually surrounded by them. They're all, they grow everywhere. Um, and um, basically, you treat that in a way, and it, uh, it's 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 definitely a, a, like a bit more of a sedative or a dry, sort of like gives you a little calms you down a fair bit, and that's the, just a normal hot push. Oh, the dot and a of yeah, this case, yeah, yeah. So that that gets used. Um, there's a certain you, you, way. Sorry to interrupt. Do you chew on it? Yeah, uh, but it's 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 what you do with it. You've got to treat it in a certain uh. way. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. I don't tell people how to treat it. No, that's all right. Way. I will ask you again. Yeah. Uh, but I did read that the, <laughs> that the sticky hop bush is actually a cure for if you've got a toothache. Yep. And I had a t- I remember years ago I had a toothache and I tried some and I chewed it and it didn't work. So I didn't know what to do with it, did I? Yeah, that's it. There I'll tell you after we're after off the air. Thank this you. Is no problem. <laughs> um, but if we, we sort of look at, um, if we look at uh, like chocolate lily and things like that, but we call that pee and tuck. Yes, and pee and tuck is is actually good for flus and things like that. Oh, okay. Um, but the roots are actually a bit of an energy drink, so there is a there is a, a well known uh, uh, plants that we do use for different things. Is that uh, right? The yeah. chocolate they're giving away seeds for it just next to us here. Yeah, you knew. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. A lot of these plants, sadly, are disappearing. You know, as we lose the biodiversity, obviously we lose a lot of these plants, and um, and. You can, you, you can often put the plants back, but you can't put it back to the extent that the ecosystem was. But the knowledge that you're talking about, when that's gone, you, yeah. that's gone. Yeah, and that's why some of, these, some of these projects that we're doing is very important because we use the knowledge of the, of the people to actually show their young about different things. So it, it's very important that we don't lose that. It is, it is a, it, it's pretty... It's a pretty good uh, part of what we used to do, um, but everybody still talks about, oh, you've got a headache, we'll take this, or like this, and um, yeah, we still believe in signs as well. You know, if you see ants crawling on the ground, you know there's a rain coming. It's definitely a rain coming. If you see um, pelicans, pelicans is another perfect example of, um, uh, they tell you some stuff, like they like tell you about the weather. If a pelican's flying high and he's doing all that lovely stuff up in the sky, it's going to be calm weather. A pelican flying close to the water is telling you rough weather's coming. Uh, they'll always fly closer to the water when the weather gets a bit, a bit rough. Uh, the woolly wagtail, woolly wagtail, we call it richerooky. Um, that's a messenger bird. Some some people will say it's a messenger of death. Some people will say it's a messenger to tell you something's coming. If you do sit down and you actually watch um, a woolly wagtail, you'll see him dancing, really dancing. He's throwing his wings around, and, and that's what really makes people say, well, he's really trying to tell you something. But really what he's doing, he's only trying to get a feed. He's trying to shoot the bugs up from the grass. But in our, in our way, he's actually there telling us, look, you know, something bad might happen, or it's, it's, um, it's uh, um, you know, somebody's coming. Um, so... We saw like got another animal, another bird that's called the minka bird, and the minka bird is um, the bird of death. And he comes I don't at, like the minka bird. <laughs> <laughs> I think he got a minka bird. Oh, the blue book cow. I reckon. Ah. Yeah, I reckon. I reckon it, it's it has to be something like that because the description that a lot of people gave me is that it looks like a little old man. Uh, and it's got a screeches like a baby crying, or something like that. So this definitely has to be an animal that comes at night. Because um, I actually heard one at Bonner Reserve that actually come in the wash house. So I think what it is, is it's in the wash house, but I think it's coming in for shelter. And it must have had a bit of a chirp. And everybody inside, like all the, the elders inside, 
the first thing they said, they said, that's a minka bird and somebody's passed away. So, um, so it's, yeah, some of the stuff is, and I'm sort of like putting it down, just listen to the descriptions of it. This has to be a night animal. Um, it has to be a bird. It's a definitely a bird. It looks like an old man. Uh, if you look at some of the owls, they have got that sort of thing about them. Yeah. Um, I think when Kingo seen when he seen the owl, he's, there's an inkabird. Inkabird. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So there's a lot of um, um, there's a lot of those animals that we have in the dark. Because remember, dark to indigenous people back was a different world. Like, it is the difference is night and day. So. Even though we know that night time is, is a night time. But well, we light it all up and we just yeah. have switches. We can make it light yeah. in the street. We don't really even see the dark and yeah, as it. we go bush. So so there's a lot of stuff. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of stories about different animals, different things. Um, you know, there's one story about what we call the kura kura bear. Um, it's it's uh, this bird. I don't think I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a real thing. I think it's a bit more of a but it's it's actually a, another bird that actually can actually kill you. Um, it, it's actually sent to kill you. So what it does, it actually goes in your mouth, weaves a little something inside, and unfortunately, its exit is not very. It's not a very good place that it exits. <laughs> so it's Damn. supposed to re- exit your rear end, and by that time, you're. you're it's done something inside you that's actually going to kill you. So, and you know it by the word by its word. It's kura kura. Um, so I haven't heard of kura kura. So um, I don't want to. Um, that's for sure. But we, you know, so we get brought up with these stories about animals and and you know what people think about them, and, and uh, it just explains it explains something about that animal, uh, that characteristic. So. You know, but the rich rookie is a is a is a bird that's a, you know they're, they're, there's a lot of messenger birds. Plovers are another messenger bird. Um, there's um, so many. Like if you want to know when a female swan is laying, there's one sure way that she tells you that she's laying is that she will open. You know, experts argue with this, this, but the black swan will actually lift up her black plumage and she'll show the white feather. And it's really clean. She cleans it because in night time, that actually, like, almost for a listen, it comes up like that. Mm-hmm. So, and as we all know, that swans don't have the same partner. Um, it's probably the male that goes and sits on the eggs and the old, the female goes and finds other boyfriends. And that's the way they sort of, like, use it. But a lot of people don't take notice of that. But that's how we tell when they're laying the female will actually pull that feather up and show the white plumage. We just know that's time for. She's probably probably a couple of weeks away from actually laying, so we know that, and that's when we start looking for swan eggs. So she's showing the boys so that they'll come and sit on the eggs for her. Oh, I think so, and, and showing the others look, you know, foot loose and fancy free. <laughs> so I think you know when you look at it, a lot of stuff uh, the animals do are, are pretty clever. Um, you know, she knows that. Um, if she does that, all her eggs, she's going to actually end up with with more genealogy, more more spread of the, the genes. Uh, you know, so I think I think it's clever stuff. You know, the animals are pretty clever when it comes to those sorts of things. But we just observe them. We just know. Um, yeah. Um, if you take notice of a kangaroo, kangaroo very rarely jumps to its left. We use that to hunt them. Yeah. <laughs> can't go backwards so we use that painting they jump to their right to their left they, they jump they they do jump to their left yeah they know they go they they will jump to their left they will always um in a situation we'll see though if they make a choice they'll, they'll, they'll most probably go to their left oh right. yeah so there's a lot of stuff that we look at and and, and see and just take notice of and we use it to give you an advantage yeah yeah it's sort of like that's probably just years and years of observing what as you all know, you know how to attract a, a, an emu. I've heard about the number seven boomerang, and you put a bit of emu fat on your body, and, the, and you have the number seven boomerang up like an emu's head, and he's a curious bird, and he'll come up to you, and then you use the number seven boomerang, which looks like a hobby stick, and yeah. you leg sweep him and dog him on the head. Yeah, there's another way. Okay. Quicker way. <laughs> good job, though, Adrian. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Um, there's another way you actually lay on your back, and you use your feet, and you move your feet like this, and it looks like other emus running. 
right. It looks like the beak. Yeah, and the right. emu will actually come over and have a look and see what those other emus are doing. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, They're good eating emus? Oh, yep. Yeah, better than uh, kangaroo. Uh, the, eggs are, the eggs are fine. <laughs> um, we've, I've eaten the eggs as well. The emu's okay. It's, it, you know, it's got no fat on it whatsoever. Um, it's, the funny thing about that is bones is honeycomb. Like, when you cut it open, it's all honeycomb. Oh, they've got the hollow but, bones. Yeah, they're all like hollow like a, like a little bird. It's, yeah, it's strange. But do you know they've got a spur? Not very many people know they've got a, actually got a, like a cat claw on their little wings. They can actually cut you open. Oh, uh, just on the end? On, right on the end, yeah. It's like a Freddy Krueger thing. And it just, um, yeah, like two little hooks. But they are pretty strong. Like a, like a plover. Yeah, yeah, like a spare wing plover. I was yeah. going to say like a bat as well, but because they sort of have a hook, don't they? A bit of a hook, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Oh. I, I don't know, but I've, I have... I, used to work with swans and they they try to bite you and it doesn't hurt but they get you with their wing yep. that can bruise your leg yeah they can hurt you yeah because that's really pretty strong yeah. yeah so we try to avoid all that sort of stuff smart and uh, <laughs> that's why you yeah, well, culture on earth we, we chase them around and they'll you know um but we'll only take what we need that's that's the message that we that we deliver we only we only take what we need we never ever go overboard with it how, how does it feel mate for you looking around of what's happening in the earth today and you can just see the exploitation the pollution the overpopulation of humans the um, natural areas reducing the native animals disappearing one by one how does that feel for you mate uh look i think i think the thing is we've, we've made so many stories about these animals and wouldn't it be a shame if if one day a certain animal that we spoke about no longer exists you know, we can say that's what we used to do with this animal. Or that used to be the story. What if it's somebody's Nachi that actually passes, that, that goes extinct? Um, yeah, they've got no more story. They've got no more connection to that. Um, I just think that, you know, we have to... We, we understand about the water. We understand about people have to make a living and things like that. But, you know, I think nature comes first. We have to look at nature. We have to preserve nature. If we don't... Once it's gone, it's gone. You'll never, probably never ever get it back. So, um, and you know, like, yeah, you know, one time ago in the Kurong, you could actually just walk along and lift rocks up and catch a feed. These days, you can't do that. It's, it's no longer there. Um, so, there's a lot of animals that we see that are that are gone, um, and you know, we don't want to see the rest. of it. I think it's you know, it's important that we look after them. We look after the the, the, the land. The land is. We don't have the land. It doesn't matter if you're black or white. We don't have the land. We don't have the healthy river. We have. We've got nothing. What quality, what quality of life do we have? Yeah. And we lose that spiritual connection. Yes. Absolutely, great message. Mm. Yeah, mate. Thank you so much for your time today, Chris. No worries. That was awesome. I love that. That was good. Work. Thank you very much. Yeah. No. Yeah. Amazing. I'm always wide open to learn about about the history. Yes, yeah. it's great. Yeah. Mate, thanks so much. We're going to go talk about the sticky hop bush now. And guys, yes. thank you very much for listening. <laughs> thanks, guys. See ya.